Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast and the very last episode before Election Day. I'm Kristen Roberts, head of news at McClatchy, and with me, as always, political correspondent, podcast co-host, and a lover of all things Pennsylvania, Alex Rory. I'm really excited for the four reporter booth here. I feel like this is a first, or at least the first time we've done this in a while. And I'm really excited to hear us all talk over one another. <laughs> I'm really pumped for that. Part. Absolutely. So it, it, today's the kind of day where you want to bring a lot of the voices that everybody has heard along this whole long journey back into our virtual podcast booth. And so we've got political correspondent yeah. <laughs> and knower of many things, Dave Cadenese. Hello, Dave. I am so fired up to be here, not only because it's only six days away, but because we're doing this at 9 a.m. <laughs> it's 9 a.m., which is, so, apparently is a problem yeah. for some people. <laughs> Dave's face looked exactly as sarcastic as his voice sounded, too, in case you're listening to this and not watching it. Thank you. Thank you. The other giggling voice you hear, a hearty welcome back to Adam Wollner. He is so nearly a regular that he should just host this thing already. Hello, Adam. Yeah, Alex, you know, you better better watch yourself. You know, if you even slip up once here, you know, I'm coming for you. But I've, I've had plenty of coffee this morning, so hopefully I can bring, you know, whatever energy Dave is, is lacking over this next half hour, hopefully I can make up for it. On, on the other end. Ah, all right. I've yeah. been wow, I'm ready now. Shots fired here at the outset. All right. So here we are. The clock is ticking toward the final postmarking of ballots and the final closing of polls that have now been open in some places for weeks. Millions of votes have already been cast and millions more will be coming in person on what should at this point just be called the final election day, not election day, given how much early voting is now just part of our process. Today, we're going to take stock of this cycle because it has been absolutely fascinating to me and I think to lots of people. We're going to glance at the map as it looks six days out from the very end. We're going to argue inevitably about whether 2016 even applies to 2020. We will talk about things that have been odd and surprising in the last few months, and then we'll offer up some suggestions about how to sit back and read the results as they begin to roll in. So let's start, and we'll start with the state of play. Alex, set the stage for everybody, please. Six days out, what is the environment, the whole environment, based on reporting, based on the spending, and based on the numbers? Well, the environment is good. For Democrats, I think simply put, and it's good for Joe Biden. It is good for a handful of Senate Democratic candidates. Whether or not that will be good enough to take a majority, it, it looks like they might. But beyond that, a lot of questions remain. It also looks good on the House level, um, where a lot of the most competitive races of 2018, obviously a great year, a Democratic tsunami year in, in, on the House level, a lot of those most competitive races aren't even competitive right now. If you're talking about someone like Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher in Texas 7, where I grew up, or Katie Porter in Orange County, or any number, especially these old Clinton seats in 2018, they're no longer competitive. It's indicative, again, of a very broadly good environment for, for the party. And you see that reflected in the presidential race, not only in the polls, but where the candidates are visiting, right? I mean, Joe Biden's in a place like Georgia. He's going to visit Iowa. These are states that were not supposed to be part of the core battleground of, of 2020. And yet here in the last weeks of the campaign, the focus is as much in a place like Texas as it seems to be in a place like North Carolina. 
Um, and this is bad news for the Republican Party. And this is bad news for, for Donald Trump. We can get into, um, I'm sure Republicans will say that this is the same thing that happened in 2016. This has been an ongoing discussion on the show. There's a lot of reason to think that even if, of course, Trump still has a chance of winning, that the, the, the hill is steeper than it was four years ago. But this is a, a climate that is, you know, bottom line, that is good for Democrats, is improving. And I think there's a lot of optimism uh, when I talk to Democratic strategists, especially down the ballot. This year could be every bit as good for the party as 2018 and possibly even better. Dave, is he right? Is Alex right? Yes, of course. Alex is always right. <laughs> I would say six days out that there is a better chance that this is a blowout than it is a close race. And, you know, I've just come to that conclusion being on the ground in places like Georgia, where I was last week. Alex mentioned that. Biden was there. The schedule says a lot. I mean, Trump was in Nebraska last night, right? I think, you know, if you look at the six core states, though, where most of this election has been centered, the, the states that we have repeatedly going back and forth, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona. If you want to get a little more nuanced on it, I think Biden is stronger in the first three. I think he is very solid in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. The polling looks pretty good for them. It has been stable for months and months and months, five to six to seven to eight point leads. And those three states, the three blue wall states, if he just wins those, he wins the presidency. Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona have seen some tightening. Republicans coming home. There's a story in the Miami Herald I read that, you know, turnout is lagging a bit in Miami-Dade County for Democrats. So I think Florida is still a bit of a question mark. North Carolina poll yesterday showed it tied. These are Republican-leaning states. I think they're going to be a little tougher to flip. And, you know, I could see Trump hanging on there by the skin of his teeth, but that's still not enough, right? He's He's got to keep the blue wall that he flipped last time. And Arizona, I think, is actually looking better for Democrats, although there there's been some tightening as well. And that hasn't even gone into the other expansion states that Alex mentioned, the, the Iowa, the Ohio, the Georgia, the potentially Texas that could be play, could be in place. So that's how I mean, we're on this weird seesaw where we could see a really, really close race where Biden is just winning back the blue wall or we can see a race where he's winning back the six core plus more. And I think, you know, right now, looking at the, if I just go on the environment, I think that is more likely right now. Adam, yeah, please jump in. I was going to say, I mean, I think what it ultimately comes down to is that Joe Biden, just at this stage in the race, has more paths to victory, more viable paths to victory than Donald Trump does right now. That doesn't mean Donald Trump doesn't have a path to victory. He, he certainly still does. I would, I think we would all agree it's, it's very narrow at this point and potentially even narrowing. Uh, cause, you know, even the way he was able to win in, in 2016, uh, really threading the needle in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, winning those, all three of those states very narrowly. And the, that is ultimately what amounted to his electoral college victory. So right now in 2020, I mean, all of these states that we're talking about, all of these battleground states, Trump is on defense, right? These are the states that Trump carried and he absolutely, in most cases, needs to win again. Uh, where Joe Biden, again, his most straightforward path would be taking back those those three Rust Belt states, and he looks pretty good there. But even if he falters in one, still a possibility if Trump uh, is able to sort of uh, return to his or at least come close to his 2016 levels 
with rural white working class voters and maybe, um, you know, black voters don't quite turn out, young voters don't quite turn out at the rates that Democrats are expecting. He's going to have other fail safe options, as, as uh, Dave wrote from, from Arizona a couple weeks ago, or maybe even a state like Georgia all of a sudden coming back into play. So, you know, certainly you can't uh, discount that, you know, that, that Trump still has a, a path here. It's just that I, I would say at this stage, Biden just has more viable paths. Um, and, you know, comparing to where we were in 2016, I think at this point, you know, there were some signs that the polls were starting to tighten a little bit. At this point, we were already after the, the James Comey letter. That certainly turned things. There were a lot of, there were a lot more undecided voters at this point in the 2016 race that really kind of turned to, to Trump there towards the end. Third party candidates played a much bigger role. They were siphoning off a lot more voters uh, than we're seeing at this point in, in, in 2020. So I think that, you know, that's kind of the difference in, in where we are now compared to, to four years ago for those people who are saying, well, isn't this what we were saying, you know, about where the race was four years ago? Josh Kraushar wrote this morning, right? And I, I tweeted his, his column this morning because I thought it was really, really very interesting. He said the big difference between 16 and 20 is that in 16, the numbers and the actions of the candidates, there was distance and space between those two things. You can see some daylight between what the numbers were telling you and what the candidates were actually doing on the ground in the final days. He says in 2020, that's not, there's, there's no distance between those two things. And that for him is a telling uh, signal about next week. And so I want, I want to throw back to you, Dave, because you did go to Georgia and it is an interesting state. What did you find on the ground in Georgia that kind of solidifies this view for you? So I think the main takeaway was that it's not even about Biden. It is about organic forces that have been moving towards the Democrats over years. Now, Georgia has some interesting examples because they had a special election with John Ossoff for an empty House seat. That was the most expensive house race in history. You had the Stacey Abrams race, which garnered a ton of just organic new registrations and engagement with new voters, young African-American voters. You know, so you, Georgia is a little bit of a special case because you had these local forces already moving. And then Biden kind of got, got the nomination and got on the train. And, and as I reported, you know, they did get some a, a late investment there that is really ramping up their advertising. They had a very small budget in Georgia just a month ago. But I think in the final reports, you'll see a big, big infusion of money up to $10 million there because they had to be convinced that it's real. But it's not like they're doing this because, oh, Biden is running the greatest, you know, Biden's running the greatest campaign or, you know, he's the most inspiring candidate. I mean, Democrats said to me, look, we weren't like super psyched about Biden, but it just didn't matter who it was. This was going to happen for whoever the nominee was going to be. Dude, that is such a critical point because it's the, maybe it might be like the key difference between 20 and 16, right? The Democrats have a candidate that allow them to make the contest not about their candidate. Yep. And in 16, it was so much about Hillary Clinton. Yes. And the postmortems of 16 point to that decisively. Right, Alex? Yeah. I mean, both candidates were deeply disliked, right? And uh, among that, those, that pool of voters, people broke for Trump decisively. And so I think the, that Biden's ability. Now, now look, yes, Joe Biden does carry some personal characteristics that have helped that. But I think overwhelmingly, the difference is that Trump has been president and we're in the middle of a pandemic. And this election is largely hinging on perceptions in the public that Donald Trump has, has mismanaged the pandemic. I mean, if we're going to talk about what ifs, obviously, a what if I'd have been fascinated to find the result of what if there hadn't been a pandemic? 
right? Would, would Donald Trump have been able to shift the focus more effectively on to Joe Biden, particularly in that sort of late spring, early summer period when the pandemic struck and naturally everyone's attention was, was fixated on that. Uh, when in normal times in a normal campaign, that would have been the moment where Trump could have tried to really define Joe Biden. I think, you know, it's, it's just something that's impossible to know. And, and look, I, I do think Joe Biden does carry something into this race that Hillary Clinton didn't. And, you know, that, that in itself is a whole podcast. <laughs> That you we know can, where my we, mind went. Well, I mean, it's, it's where, yeah, sure. And, and, and when you talk about this or you even mentioned it on Twitter, um, you know, I mean, there is a discussion to have about sexism. There's a discussion to have about, you know, whether or not Joe Biden is really different or if he's just perceived different. We'll, we'll put that aside for the moment, but you're, you're absolutely right that the, a key, key part of this race is that the focus has just been overwhelmingly on, on Donald Trump. I, I wrote a story. Last week, I quoted a, a Republican pollster, albeit a anti-Trump Republican pollster, Whit Ayers, who just said that, you know, Joe Biden needed to make this race about Donald Trump. And the, the great thing for him is that not only did he try to make the race about Donald Trump, but so did Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump really made this race about him. And that's also about not just his response to the pandemic, but his complete inability to relinquish the spotlight, to do anything but call attention to himself relentlessly at, at, at all times. And it has, it has not, you know, it helped him set the agenda in 16 in a lot of ways. In this case, I think it's really just, you know, brought a lot of negative attention at a time when he can least afford it. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the incumbent now, right? He, he can't run as, as a challenger anymore. <laughs> right. I, I mean, and, and like, I could have seen like a scenario again, without the pandemic, you know, we have been even seen Republican congressional candidates or just any congressional candidate, where if even if you're in the, the incumbent, sometimes you're able to flip the script and you're able to say someone like, again, if you're running against Joe Biden, who had been in public office 47 years, I've, I've heard from the Trump campaign, you know, that you're able and to make them the incumbent. Apparently. Well, right, right. There was a <laughs> real opening there and, and they just, you know, it was really, it was like the last 30 minutes of the debate last week where it felt like Trump really hit his stride and really started to, to hammer that particular criticism of Biden, that he was a creature of Washington. He hadn't gotten anything done. If you're not happy with the status quo, why would you ever elect him? I mean, that should have been the message the whole time, right? Instead, we spent, you know, half the episodes on the show kind of wondering what the heck is Donald Trump's message. It's the kitchen sink. He never chose one. He did everything, every rally, so every reporter could write a different angle. So he did like, he's senile. He's been there 47 years. He's a China. socialist, you know, like right. it, 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 law and order. He's going to let, he's going to kill the suburbs. But like, he, he just does the kitchen sink approach. And I, there wasn't one finely tuned message right. I mean, every there, day. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, there, it, it feels like that they have just kind of jumped around from week to week. I mean, they spent a week really pushing Hunter Biden, right? And then yeah. almost as soon as the debate right. ended, they just dropped it. Uh, almost entirely, at least from the campaign itself, that message is no longer being driven. And, and that's just symbolic of the, the entire campaign so far from Trump. You know, but I think the, there is one message that the party and down ballot candidates have carried from Trump through into their races, and that's the socialism angle. And I think one of the things that has benefited Biden tremendously in pushing that back has been the silence of the left, how quiet the left has been in this race. And, and Alex, you've written about the 
kind of the struggles within the Democratic Party, the factions within the Democratic Party. How and why have elements from the left not played a larger role? Kristen, it's a great question. One of of my big surprises of the election. I just assume that you would periodically have these eruptions on the left that Joe Biden isn't doing enough to satisfy their concerns. You know, I've done some reporting on that this week for a a forthcoming story. Um, And I think some of those concerns are are there. But if you want to lay it out quickly, why the left has been quiet and what it means. One, Joe Biden did make a concerted effort after the primary to reach out to them. He had the unity commission with Bernie Sanders. Even some of his rhetoric changed talking about that the pandemic had exposed these big structural weaknesses and we need to make big, almost transformative change. He almost sounds like Bernie Sanders. He's talked a little bit less about that here in the home stretch, but over the summer, he did make an effort. I, there is this sense on the left, I keep hearing the same basic comment from, from many people that they just, they've kind of almost matured in their view of their relationship. That yes, we understand that Joe Biden was not our first pick, but he is better than the alternative. And we just look, when he gets into office, there, there's, we're, we're going to be clear-eyed about it. We don't see him as a transformational figure. We don't see him getting elected and just, you know, say, okay, job done, everybody. The moment he gets elected, the moment, uh, the second part of our job, the second phase of our effort starts, which is to really push him to keep embracing uh, these liberal ideas, whether it's on healthcare or climate change. You know, they see themselves as part of a coalition and they're going to be an active and vocal coalition once or if Joe Biden does take the White House. The reason they're not being as vocal now, I mean, look, they, they hate Trump. I mean, this is a consequence of, you know, not just disliking a president or preferring the alternative, but in their bones, despising the man in the White House. And I think, I mean, that above all is, is the biggest factor here that they understand that they have to defeat Donald Trump, no matter their concerns with Joe Biden or the broader Democratic Party. Um, and because of that, they've been good soldiers, uh, much to my surprise. And I think to the surprise of, of many people, maybe even many people on the left, it's been a surprise. I think Joe Biden's unique ability, at least you know, compared to a lot of the other candidates who ran in the Democratic primary, to pull together this very broad coalition where you know you can have a, a Bernie Sanders, but also a John Kasich on the other end supporting you. And of course, you know, the number one driver of that is opposition to Donald Trump. Right? Joe Biden is the alternative. We can't stand Trump. We're, we're basically going to vote for his opponent no matter what. But you know, the fact that Joe Biden is seen as more of a middle of the road politician has established a lot of these relationships for years. I mean, I think that's uh, another. You know, key reason that we heard, Alex, for why Bernie Sanders, you know, got out of this race uh, much earlier than he did in 2016, why he has really been, you know, a loyal foot soldier is because he, he just he likes Joe Biden. You know, he, he thought that he respected him, uh, you know, when others didn't, when they were colleagues in, in the Senate. And, and I think, you know, the same goes, goes for, for the other side. A lot of, you know, Republicans who are, you know, yearning for the days of John McCain and, and George W. Bush think, oh yeah, Joe Biden was around in those times and he worked with, with, you know, kind of those old school Republicans back in the day. So I think, you know, you do have to give some credit to Joe Biden, you know, the candidate for being able to pull that together because, you know, would, you know, if Bernie Sanders was in this position, would he have this same sort of broad coalition with Elizabeth Warren? You know, even some of these, uh, you know, some of the, the younger uh, candidates, what, you know, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, I don't know if they would have been, you know, been able to have at least this, this breadth of, of a coalition, which is really uh, remarkable for, for this stage of, of a presidential race in an, in an electorate that's so polarized. If Bernie had been the nominee, it's a great what if, too. What, what this race right. would look like is another great motive. So, Dave, how much of what we think we're seeing right now 
is anti-Trumpism, how much of it is a, a realignment that continues to show results for Democrats in the years ahead? I think it's most, mostly anti-Trumpism. I mean, we could have this as a separate podcast, but I think I think any of these nominees, I think Bernie's probably ahead. You know, I think it's a different race, but I, you know, I, I, I think they do get on board for Bernie. I think the Biden coalition would eventually. I think for Warren, I think the same thing. I think even Buttigieg. I think, you know, Democrats are just so mad and so exhausted that I think they would have taken me. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, 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 just I, I, I did pick up saying, some I have too much baggage. Wait till the investigative reporters yeah, get on you, that's man. True. I don't know. That's true. That's true. But I, but I do think. I mean, to, to answer your central question, I think it's more anti-Trumpism. I think like these these you know suburban women. I just hate that phrase because like we all know it's more diverse than that. But the <laughs> suburban women that are going to flip to Trump, like, are they going to hold? And you know, if Biden is the president. You know, in 2024, are they going to automatically vote Democrat? Like, I don't think so. I think if like Marco Rubio was the nominee or if Marco Rubio was the president and had beaten Hillary Clinton and was in his first term, like is Iowa even in play today? Is Ohio even in play? Or is it just like we are so exhausted by the venom and, you know, the lies and, you know, the handling of the biggest pandemic in 100 years uh, you know, around one man. And I don't know, it's hard to run these, these, you know, these fantasy football scenarios, but I mean, people were floating to me, like, you know, if it was Marco Rubio right now, or just a young, regular, generic Republican, sort of a Joe Biden Republican, that's just inoffensive and, and well-liked, like, is he or she on their way to an easy re-election? I think Trump has, I mean, Alex said this, but Trump has made everything about him. He wants it to be about him, even if it's not to his advantage. And, you know, I think that is going to be the story of his demise. I mean, it's the number one question facing Democrats if Joe Biden wins is what is the coal? How do you preserve that coalition? Parts of it will just be gone. I mean, I can't tell you the number of just over the last four years of voters who, I mean, you're talking about the kind of people who don't really like minimum wage laws. Yeah. Right, have have big concerns about that. Who are going to vote for Joe Biden and do so without much hesitation? That's right, because they do see this as a referendum on the sort of character and now the pandemic response and and, and the response to the George Floyd protests um, from from the incumbent president. But it, and and you know, but the moment Joe Biden wins, that goes away. That's absolutely You're not right. Organizing around yeah. Trump, you're not organizing around his response to the pandemic or his response to the Black Lives Matter protest, you have to find a way to build that coalition through your own, you know, legislative initiative um, and your own presidency. And and again, I mean, we could literally devote an entire podcast, not like a show, but that could be the entire, that could be beyond the bubble moving forward. Um, <laughs> I'd rather if, do if, beyond if, the bubble. What if Marco Rubio had been president? <laughs> I, I actually really enjoyed a that. A six so part series. You, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, anyway, it's just, you know, even so much of the Biden's messaging is so overtly, really ever since the convention on through is just 
you know, what is the commercial playing with Sam Elliott as the narrator, right? That let's all agree that we're Americans yeah. and start there. You There's know, like, like no that, Republican that, mountains or whatever that is. Right, no democratic right. valleys. There are no democratic. But now, but now because of Trump, could Marco Ruby even run in the Republican primary and have success? Well, that's the question, like right? Like after right. we get through this, that's the question. What is the model of a Republican candidate at that point? It, it, does the party say, oh, okay, well, that only worked because of him and it's not transferable? Or is there even more polarization? It's still a Trump party after this. It's just depend, you know. Someone's going to have to try to split the baby and it's going to be very difficult. But I still think it's going to be a very Trumpish. I mean, the populism is not going away. That 40 percent that Trump's going to get no matter what. I don't know if it's 40 or 43 nationally. That's still a lot of voters and they're going to miss Trump and be loyal to Trump. And like, right, Trump's not going away. He still has a Twitter account. He'll probably have a TV show. Oh, my God. He is not going away. So he could just as easily run again in oh, four wow. years. Floated, he did it. He it's went really there. Hard, you know, I mean, if, he <laughs> if it's lose. not him, then one of his children, right? Right. One, one of his, yeah. The new, you know. the new, the new political dynasty is the Trump dynasty. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, Adam, um, tell everybody how to watch this thing. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we've been talking about this on this podcast, but it's, it's important to remember that we're looking more probably at an election week than than an election day, right? Um, you know, obviously, millions upon millions of ballots have already been cast. More people voting absentee due to the, to the due to the pandemic, and just by the way that uh, the the rules for counting these ballots in states are, are so different, you know, there's a very good chance we're not going to get you know a, a a final call of you know who is the president of the United States on Tuesday night. However, there there are a couple states that we can look to early on for at least some indications potentially of which way uh, the race is going. And this gets into a little bit of the point Dave was making earlier. But the, the first big battleground state uh, where polls close uh, Tuesday night is is Florida. First polls are closing there already at seven o'clock Eastern time. And this is a state where absentee ballots are actually already being counted. It's one of the few states where clerks are allowed to count several weeks ahead of time. Florida, you know, they're, they're used to, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of mail ballots. Uh, you know, so a lot of the election officials there are saying we're actually anticipating we'll be able to, to count things pretty quickly on, on Tuesday night. And so Florida, you know, it, it is a must win for Trump. So if the early returns are looking there, like Biden maybe, maybe has a, an advantage, that could be a, a sign that, boy, you know, if, if Trump's, you know, behind in Florida here, you know, just wait, wait till we get to states that are even less favorable to him, like Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, states where ballots can't start being counted, absentee ballots until the polls close. So we're not going to know the results in the Midwest probably for a couple of days. Uh, and then shortly after that, uh, North Carolina also closes first first polls at, at 7.30. Similar case there, absentee ballots can be counted ahead of time. Another state that's uh, uh, more important to, to Trump than it is to Biden in terms of reaching 270 electoral votes. Um, so those are two states early on where if, if it looks like Biden has an early advantage, we may not get that final call of, of who the winner is, but, you know, Things will be looking pretty good for Biden. But if the results are close there, then we're probably going to have to wait a couple of days until we we get a little more clarity from Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan. Yeah, I think it's exceedingly important that everybody understand how long this might take and to also understand that the length of time between the closing of polls and the announcing of a winner does not indicate fraud. 
we just need to level set everybody's expectations. There could be a long period of time where we don't have information, but that does not mean that there have been shenanigans, right? So the more, so I'm just imploring, I'm asking all of our listeners to think about that and share it with your friends. Cause the last thing this country needs right now are long, prolonged periods of uncertainty. And we might be looking at that next week. All right. I think we need to jump into what's going to be the final segment. And rather than you guys doing a notebook dump on us, we're going to do something a little bit different. I want to know what thing you are most looking forward to post-morteming after the result is known. And I will start. For me, it's the law and order vote. I am so deeply surprised that the Trump campaign dropped that angle from its ads in the last months of the contest. And so I'm looking forward to exit polls and all of the analysis to understand what they saw that led them to drop that as an approach. Who wants to go next? Come on, come on. I'll, I'll go. I, I mean, the <laughs> the real answer is I, I want the the sort of like, 10,000 word story on what exactly went on inside the Trump campaign and its operations over, <laughs> over the, the course of this year and, and even earlier. But I will say just, uh, you know, if we're going to get a little uh, politically nerdy, I'm really interested um, in whether or not we do see this gender gap emerge, not just with white voters, but also uh, black and Latino voters. There has been a lot of conversation about this. There has been some real evidence it is a real problem for Democrats and possibly um, a big problem down the line. There were Republicans who see that more sort of culturally moderate or culturally conservative men of color and some women of color are the future of the Republican Party. For me, you know, that needs to start paying off this race. And there is some question, even if there is evidence of whether or not it's actually going to happen. There's always a big discussion debate about whether the polls are accurately counting Latinos and among Black voters, uh, sometimes they arrive late for de- the Democratic Party. So after all this hue and cry, we could it could turn out in the postmortems that Democrats won the same share of the, the sort of non-white vote that they always did. Republicans will really, I think, have to ask themselves some hard questions about whether this is a viable path forward. But I think that is that's something I'm, I'm looking at um, and plan to look at um, in the weeks following the election. All right, Dave, your turn. I think it's possible that Trump loses the election and loses support with white folks, but gains support with Hispanics, which will be an odd twist given, you know, he came down the elevator and said all those things about rapists and Mexicans. And the guy could end up improving his his Hispanic share of the vote. He got 28% in 2016. A lot of these polls I look in into Texas, Nevada, Florida, he's getting higher than 28% in the Hispanic vote, but yeah. he's losing his base, which was the non-college educated white folks who are moving away. So ironically, it's white people are going to sink Trump, not Hispanics. I think that's a possible outcome. And that will be sort of a twist. I mean, if you would tell people who Donald Trump is and that that's the result of his demise, I think that would be a surprise. So much yeah. for demographics or destiny. Adam, you're up. So I'm really curious to see if there's going to be any split ticket voting uh, in, in this election. Now, if, if you remember in 2016, that was actually the first presidential election since we started electing senators directly that um, every single state voted the same for president and, and for Senate. 
right? There was no state where they voted for Trump and then they voted for uh, a Democratic senator. So I'm curious to see if that trend continues in, in 2020. Right now, the, the polls suggest that it very well could. I think that there are, though, a couple states worth keeping an eye on where the presidential result could differ from the Senate result. Uh, Montana is an interesting case where uh, the, the Democratic candidate there is a uh, former presidential candidate uh, and, and the governor there, Steve Bullock. He's been running uh, ahead of Joe Biden in otherwise a very reliably red state. Couple of battleground states that we talked about, North Carolina and Iowa. Um, Joni Ernst looks like she could potentially be in trouble there, the, the Republican senator in Iowa. That, you know, that's a place where, where Republicans are very concerned. So even if uh, Trump is able to eke out a win there, you know, that, that, that's a place potentially where uh, the Democrats, Teresa Greenfield, could pull it off. And then North Carolina is, is a very interesting Senate race as well between Cal Cunningham being, um, having all these, these personal affairs that have come to light and that, you know, Tom Tillis himself actually even, even contracted coronavirus, which, I, which, um, you know, has drawn attention to, to his response. You know, another one of those states where I think it's going to be very close, the, the results for both the presidential and the Senate race. So, you know, that, that could be a, a spot to look for that as well. But I'll be very curious to see if, if, if 2016 started a trend where split ticket voting is now just a thing of the past, or if in 2020 we'll return to, to a, a bit more uh, of a normal election where we're at least there, there, there are some voters, not many, who are, are voting for, for different parties uh, for, for president and for Senate. Adam, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. I hadn't thought even to think about that. So now I'm looking forward to doing that piece of it too. All right. So listen, I want to extend a massive thank you to our listeners. I've gotten a lot of emails recently in the last few weeks, and some have been challenging and some have been complimentary. And I think all of them are a reflection of the fact that we are in this extraordinary moment in American history. It has been an absolute joy and an honor for all of us to have this chance to talk about this election season and to focus on the good reporting that's being done on the ground in the States. Thank you. We love hearing from you. So really, thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you to this team, to Alex and to Dave and to Adam. And of course, thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. If you don't, feel free to email me. Happy election day. Happy election night to one and all. Talk to you next week.